What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. And this episode, I'm interviewing Tom Ohanian. Now, Tom is the co-creator of Avid, and he's won Oscars and Emmys, and he recently released a book titled The Making of a Motion Picture Editor. Now, he and I sit down and we discuss the early days of Avid, we discuss some of his work in writing, and then we focus primarily on the book. But this book is definitely something you should check out. Uh, you can check it out on Amazon or any of the ebook services or your favorite bookshop. With all that said, here's my interview with Tom. Do you mind if we start just a bit about your involvement with Avid and then sort of segue into the the book? Sure. So I joined Avid in February of 1989. I was the eighth employee. And, you know, I came to the company really as sort of the subject matter expert in terms of sort of the creative aspects of, you know, of editing. And it was really a perfect time for me because I had gotten, you know, I had had a broadcast engineering degree, you know, so I know how, you know, television engineering works and so forth. Then I had gotten a degree you know, at night while I was working during the day as a commercial edit- editor, I had cut like 700 commercials. And at night I had gone to get a, a master's degree in what we would now call a UI UX. Back then it was really kind of called instructional technologies. And uh, it was really teaching using technology to help teachers teach subjects. And so by the time that Avid came along, it was like this perfect place where I knew what the creative aspect of editing was because I was, you know, I was doing it. I knew how engineering worked and how video signals worked, you know, from all my television station background. And then I had some really good grounded training in how do you teach in a simple way something that, you know, appears to be complicated. And so I came on and uh, it was a really amazing experience, but it was a very difficult experience too, in the sense that, you know, now you can look back on it and people say, oh, you know, it must've been really easy, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really, you know, the thing, it's kind of like being an editor in a way, you know, you've got these moments where there's great exhilaration and there's a lot of moments where you're just exhausted, you know, and there was just a lot of hard work and so forth. And we were doing things that nobody else really had ever done before because, you know, JPEG, as a hard, I mean, there was no JPEG chip, um, you know, that didn't come out until 91. And so it was very, very interesting in the sense of breaking new ground and trying to see, you know, how could you make something easier to do uh, as opposed to really being, you know, a physically orienting, you know, oriented task, you know, what with lifting, you know, film cans. And then also, you know, could you open up the creative aspect by being able to do things without any uh, hesitation? What's funny is like, I, would never have thought of it as easy when I was reading your background and everything I was like damn that must have been exhausting and hard work because you're coding something that doesn't exist so like how did you figure out things like how is it going to look how is it going to feel and everything when no one's ever done it like you said you know it's building a better mousetrap it's building a mousetrap no one's ever (laughs) seen before you know like it's building something that's never existed yeah, no, it's an interesting question because I think one of the keys was to look at how people were doing it now, you know, at that moment, and then try to give them something that was the same so they didn't really have to, you know, learn too many new constructs and then give them something that, you know, gave them the choice of being able to do things. And so that's why, you know, those first systems, and even today to some extent, because, you know, interfaces haven't changed remarkably, you know, given the fact that it's 30 years on. And so that's why the whole concept of a, you know, in film, it was always that, you know, source reel and take up reel, feed reel, take up reel, you know, model. 
And then on the videotape side, it was always like a source machine and a record machine, right? And so that's why you had these constructs of, you know, a window that had your content, which was called a bin to mirror the film editor's bin. Okay, so we got that. And then there was this, you know, if you were a videotape editor, you knew what a source side was, or and then you knew what the record side was. So that was good and easy to grasp. And then on the film side, it was the same thing. You know, there's dailies and here's, you know, my my sequence. I think the thing that was an, a very important thing to put in place was that timeline because the timeline really mirrored a film synchronizer in the sense of, you know, your video and audio tracks, but the videotape editor never had anything like that. You know, here was an architectural blueprint of your sequence and it was amazing. And you could, you know, move around it. You could see, you know, all the clips and so forth. But, you know, I mean, there were moments where, you know, we would say, you know, we would do our training, you know, for people and they would say, okay, we'll move the mouse on the screen. And we forgot. And, you know, I was got a shock one time when, you know, I actually had a film editor who took the physical mouse and put it on the screen and moved it because they, you know, this person had never touched a computer before. And so it was every aspect of interface design, you know, you couldn't move the model. I mean, can you imagine if we just had like a single screen and a timeline, it would be really weird. People would not be ready for it at the time. Now, you know, now you can do stuff like that. And certainly compositing systems, you know, did all those types of things, but it would be too strange. It would be too much of a leap. So we had to sort of hew to what was there at the time. And then, you know, it brought, it really put a spotlight on the training. It really had to not take anything for granted. You know, here we were, you know, people from the, the, industry or the computer industry or, you know, with software and, you know, you'd say, well, I mean, one of the things, you know, frankly, Gordon, it was really like crazy. I mean, this is like a two week discussion was when you mark an out point should be inclusive or exclusive. And you think about it now and you're like, well, it's obvious what it should be. And like, was it, is it, you know, the videotape editor expected, you know, it not to include the film editor expected, you know, whatever frame you see is the frame I'm going to cut and going to include. Right. So that was like two weeks. Imagine if we chose poorly. I mean, one of the things that was really remarkable was just like the ergonomic stuff. Like, for example, you know, I was in a discussion. It was very, very early on. And, you know, they were asking me, uh, well, where should, uh, you know, marking an in point and marking an out point if you're doing it on the keyboard be? You know, and so, you know, I looked at my hand. I'm like, well, look, the most dominant, whether you're left-handed or right-handed, your strongest fingers almost always are going to be your index finger and your middle finger. And so that's why we we sort of modeled them based on where those fingers, you know, would be. Imagine if you would put it on a pinky finger. (laughs) It'd be ridiculous. You'd have so many problems. So, I mean, it was every aspect of things that you'd have to look at. And so that's what became hard. It was all these different things that if you got some of them wrong, the key ones wrong, it might have resulted in a bad, you know, user experience and it just wouldn't seem natural. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, we did get right was that, okay, this kind of seems natural, even though it's something completely new. The big question around this is that, you know, now we have Avid, Adobe, Final Cut X, Resolve, but in the 90s, I feel like a lot of people sort of forget there was almost like an explosion of all these editing softwares like everyone was trying to build one there was the um montage there was the edit or whatever it was called and it works yeah division you know there were so many you know there were things that you know acom had put one out you know and then there was data translations you know had done one and so i think you know at that point everyone was sort of scrambling to get in on the opportunity because we had showed that, you know, we and sort of, you know, editing machines corporation, you know, the EMC two, you know, we had shown that there's, okay, there's a market. And for every naysayer who said the resolution is so horrible, 
you know, because it was very bad. It was very pic- unbelievably pixelated. But, you know, its appeal, of course, was to the commercial editor working in either videotape, hybrid videotape laser disc, or the film editor. And, you know, we get to remember a lot of these folks were, you know, editing commercials on film still. So it gave you huge flexibility, even. And, and, you know, you had the key, of course, was, you know, being able to do that auto assembly off those three quarter inch tapes or, you know, or beta cam tapes, wherever it might have been, VHS tapes, and being able to control that stuff because then you could get, you know, an auto assembled resolution that you could present to the customer, the client. And then it would just exploded. And then, you know, what you saw was all these small companies trying to get into it. And what was remarkable here was, you know, the silence that came from the, you know, large entrenched companies, right? I mean, Grass Valley, Sony and so forth and so on. Any one of those companies, you know, had the ability they had the knowledge. I think pretty much, you know, they could they could cobble together a system, right? I mean, if they so chose. And I think it mostly came down to, you know, that whole phrase of not wanting to creatively destroy a revenue stream, whereas the smart decision would have been, you know, let's continue doing what we're doing in terms of time code based, you know, linear editing systems, but let's do this other stuff. Let's carve off, a, you know, a group to do that. And they just came up too late. But yeah, there was a huge explosion and probably a good dozen of them were out there at the time. And I think to really win, you had to have a sort of singular focus on that kind of product as opposed to, you know, being a company where one, you were either focused on that stuff, but you didn't have enough, you know, capital to see it through or two, you know, let's say you were a Sony because Sony came out with the Xpre system, you know, at the time. And, you know, it was it was a, a decent system, but it didn't align with the main lines of revenue. Right. And so that became, you know, that became a problem. But, you know, there were there were ebbs and flows to this stuff. You know, at any you know, there were unbelievably great years and then there were some down years where, you know, there was a point where we did take on a lot of projects. And, you know, when you take on lots and lots of projects, it dilutes, you know, your ability to do any one of them really, really spectacularly because you got to shift your dollars around. So it's hard. It's hard to manage lots of those things. You have all these competitors uh, and obviously like Avid won out in the 90s. So was there something that you learned from your competitors that you implemented or something that you learned from your competitors that you still use to this day uh, from a business sense? That's a really interesting question. I think the first thing I would say that we learned and that I certainly use to this day is you have to choose what you really want to do well and stick to it. Because if you don't, I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, there was a time in the, in the Avid days where our development cycle was about six months. Then we added a lot of structure and a lot of management, and we added a lot of different programs and products that we were trying to put in. But the editor suffered because the editor, you know, you know took on a development cycle of 18 months. And that sort of opened the door for competitors to get sort of either feature parity or maybe a few little nice bells and whistles. And at the time, data translation has some really good resolution, and we were suffering for it, right? And so that's, I think, the first thing. Decide what you want to be and really own the category or really own, you know, that product because your customers will, they always have to do more. They always, you know, will look for the best applications, best tools. So that's one. You know, and the second thing I think is, you know, it's a cliche now and it's certainly not my phrase, but you have to really be confident to destroy one line of revenue in order to build an almost bigger one or to have a, you know, a much more strategic runway in the marketplace. 
you know, you think about, you know, there's between 48 and 52% of the fortune 500 companies in existence, you know, 20 years ago exist today and some through consolidation, but, you know, now you have, you know, a company like Avid and others, you know, who are, you know, hopefully, have, you know, are weathering the storm of those nineties because, you know, there was a, enough of a focus on sort of the flagship product. You know, and a lot of the people who worked for me and a lot of the people who worked alongside me did go to Apple. They did go to Adobe. Some are still in these companies. Um, you know, and there are other, there are, you know, and, and uh, Resolve, you know, is out there, of course. I think Blackmagic is doing a really interesting job in terms of, you know, the types of companies they're acquiring and how they sort of fold them together to, to have, you know, sort of a, a lens to device strategy. But it's focused, right? It's focusing on, you know, the products that people make a living out of and they, they you know, they hone their craft and they want to, you know, they want to really be longstanding members of the industry and those people, your users look to you as a manufacturer, you know, and want to make sure that you're going to be behind your products. And I think that's a very important thing that, you know, I certainly have, you know, have taken away. I think those are the types of things, Gordon, that, you know, that come to mind. You know, I'd love to utilize that as my segue into your book. So what was it that inspired you to start the journey of making this book? And I guess, tell us, tell us the name of the book too, so our listeners can hear it. Yeah, of course. Well, uh, so the name of the book is The Making of a Motion Picture Editor, and it features interviews with 50 of the really most recognized, uh, most awarded people out there in the industry. There are 551 films that, you know, the book spans in terms of, you know, the editorial credits, 360 Academy Awards, and another 785 nominations when you put all the films together. And, you know, I had done textbooks previous to this one. I had done, you know, the digital nonlinear editing textbook way back in the early 90s because people just didn't know what it was. They didn't know how compression worked. And I really wanted to demystify that to educate. Then, um, so I did that book. And then, um, you know, I co-authored a book on digital filmmaking. And these, you know, were translated in lots of languages and used in a lot of schools. And really, it was to educate. This book, I had trained a lot of editors. I had met a lot of, you know, editors. Many of, you know, became my colleagues and friends and so forth. And I was really worried because all of this history was out there and it wasn't being preserved. And, you know, they were passing away and so forth. Many people who I had met And so, you know, I took this journey, you know, which ended up being between six and seven years, depending on how you count it, really. And I never thought it would take that long, Uh, but it was really hard to get, you know, some of the folks and, you know, they were on working, some were retired, it was hard to find them and so forth. And I uncovered a lot of stories that, you know, some of the stories, you know, little dribs and drabs had been told before, but I had uncovered, I ended up being, you know, really blessed because I uncovered a lot of stories that had never been told before. And I think really since I did the book, seven or so editors have since passed away. So in many ways, this will be sort of their last words. And it was just a really amazing, amazing stories. A lot of humor, a lot of things where you just think, how did that even, like, how is that even possible? You know, I mean, what are the odds that that could happen? So it was really, you know, really quite intriguing. And then I think, you know, what I came away with is just the similarity of the stories and the journeys that these editors took, many of whom, you know, they were about to give up. They were going to give up. They were like a day away, a week away, and then they got the next phone call, and ultimately it was for a film that, you know, they, they get an Academy Award for. And you think like, how does that happen? What kept you going on this journey? Because you said it's six years, and I think of documentary filmmakers who are, you know, they spend 10 years, like, just out of passion. So what kept you going over those six years? I think it was two things that kept me going. One, I was really dedicated to this whole idea of preserving oral histories and 
because the craft is so important. You know, that's sort of the first thing. And the second thing was that I was uncovering amazing things that I felt was were going to be very inspiring to people who not only love movies, but to people who, you know, want to go into the industry. And one of the things that, you know, as I, as I was saying earlier, you know, Gordon, was that I was uncovering this sort of perseverance because it's a tough industry, right? It's a tough industry to, you know, to get into. It's a tough industry to make your name sometimes. A lot of people, you know, you're competing with and so forth. And I was finding really inspiring stories from people that you didn't think that they were struck, that they had struggled to get to where they are. And that was kind of, that's what kept me going. You know, once I started hearing these stories of like, I mean, I can give you many examples that we can get into, but I was hearing like, it was really that bad. It was really that struggle, that much of a struggle, you're only making $35 a week, you're about to give it up and so forth. And then, you know, you get this Academy Award. And so it was those really those two things that kept me going. And then, you know, there was always like that next person, which like, oh, I got to get this person. How do I find this person? (laughs) So it became kind of like a almost like a challenge in a way. I do want to talk to you about Marsha Lucas, because when I was reading, you know, doing my research for this, Uh, I found in an interview that you said it took you over a year to get her and you felt it was really important. And I've always felt it was really important that people knew about Marsha's work. So I'm wondering, you know, she's played such an important role, I think, in a lot of people's love of film, but people don't realize it. So I was wondering if you could tell me what was so important about her uh, and getting her. Yeah, what you describe is perfectly correct in the sense of I think she's very underrepresented in the writing. She's very underappreciated. I think people don't really don't realize because you know she's I think you know she was overshadowed a bit in the historical writings that you know sort of skewed to George. And so I wanted to get Marsha, and there was a bunch of reasons. The first is you know everybody remembers sort of her you know Academy Award with Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu on Star Wars, but you know she was on Empire, she was on Jedi, some of these were uncredited, but she also did Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which is a great Scorsese film. You know, Ellen Burstyn won her Academy Award for that. She was a supervising editor on Taxi Driver. She was a co-editor with, you know, the great Verna Fields from Jaws uh, on uh, American Graffiti. And, um, New York, New York, she did, and so forth and so on. So this is an amazing person, amazing talent who had just dropped off the radar. And, you know, it was very hard to find her. I went to the Editor's Guild, and they had a number in L.A. It had been disconnected. You know, subsequently, she had moved to Hawaii. And so months and months and months passed. And I was doing a bunch of research, and I found that a while back, she had done this one speaking engagement at this sort of, um, you know, film retrospective. So I contacted the organizer of that, and she just happened to have Marsha's assistant's email address. So, you know, this began this began the journey, right? And so I emailed her, said what I wanted to do. I said, you know, it's just really unfathomable to be able you know, to do this book, you know, without telling her story. And, you know, she said, well, I'll pass it on to Marsha. She's, you know, she's in Hawaii and she's really not going to be available for the you know, three to four months. And so, you know, the question is, you know, do you publish? Do you not publish? What do you do? And, you know, and there were a couple of others that I was waiting for. So I eventually got to talk to her and it was great. I mean, it was really amazing because when George was shooting Star Wars in London, Marsha was, well, she wasn't working on the film. You know, she, she basically would drive him to Elstree Studios. She'd look at some footage, then she'd drive George back to the apartment and she, she basically 
was cooking dinner. And then she saw some scenes that were edited and she told me, you know, my heart sank. And I said, so why? And she said, because the editor that George had, he was turning the content into more like a comedy. And it wasn't that at all. That wasn't the intention. So, you know, she said, you have to do something about this. And so eventually, you know, she, you know, George replaced the editor and she came on. And, you know, of course, you know, the first thing she was doing was doing all the action, the action scenes so they could turn them over to visual effects. And then eventually, you know, they hired the other editors. But, uh, she's really an unsung hero on that. You know, I think that's probably one of the more interesting things. And then it was interesting because she said, she goes, well, we did this screening, you know, and then Spielberg was there and De Palma was there and all these people were there. Spielberg says, George, this is one of the best things you've ever done, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, De Palma says, what's this thing with the force? You got to get rid of that thing. It's horrible. Nobody understands what it is. Right. And so then like, you know, a few weeks later, they're watching an assembly and, and Marcia says to me, she says, and George took out, like, there's like only two references to the force in like the whole movie. <laughs> She's like, George, what did you do? You got to put that stuff back. So, you know, it's all this like, what if she wasn't there? What if she didn't persevere? What if she didn't see, you know, what was really there? It's just amazing. The film would not be anything where, you know, where it became. Now, one of the things I've found interviewing editors is a lot of them are very, I want to say introverted and very quiet because they spend their days in dark rooms. So one of the things I've always found difficult is sort of getting them to open up and draw out some of the story. So what, what were some of your techniques in, in interviewing them to get them to open up? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there wasn't really um, the questions that I asked, you know, some, some of these people had been interviewed, you know, multiple times. Right. And one of the questions that I started, you know, that, that sort of I used to sort of open things up was things like, what have you learned along the way that wasn't so apparent when you started? And it was less about asking about a specific film, right? I mean, yes, I did ask, you know, people about JFK or I asked people about Born on the Fourth of July, right? But asking that question took them into a complete direct, different direction. It was more about, you know, the experience of becoming and an editor and, you know, what are the things that you have to look out for? You know, what did you learn along the way? You know, what films didn't do as well as you thought they would have done? And why do you think that was the case? Um, it was questions like that, Gordon, that sort of opened things up. And then once we got sort of those things started, that would get the ball rolling. Then we could go in and, you know, talk about a specific film and so forth. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> David Brenner and Joe Hutching won Academy Awards for Born on the Fourth of July. And then, of course, Joe went off with Pietro to do JFK. And then Pietro went off to do Black Hawk Down, right? And so very talented people. And I asked David, I said, you know, when he said, what did you learn along the way? He said, you know, one of the things that I found was that I was doing Born on the Fourth of July. And, you know, I was editing this scene. It was, it's the scene there in the hut. And, you know, there's an incoming airstrike. And all this, they got to get out of that hut. And it's all this drama, and Brenner, it's a Friday, and David shows it to Oliver Stone, and Stone looks at him, basically, you know, gives him this withering stare and says, what have you done? How could you do this? Do you have any idea what we went through there? And he, he leaves. That's his feedback. And, you know, it's like, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you even interpret it, right? And so it was less about talking about that film and more about what did he mean? What did he say? What did you do? And he said, you know, I worked all weekend and showed him what I did on Monday. And Oliver said, good, much better. Now we can get to work. What actually happened? I didn't really ask him about the scenes, the scene. I didn't ask him about any of that stuff. And what David told me was, I didn't really understand the emotion behind the material as opposed to the material on the page. And so I cut it in a way that was more, you know, maybe more cuts than it needed to be. And 
while I thought I was adding suspense and drama, there was a different, you know, there was a different plane that Oliver was operating on. You know, uh, I'm sort of embellishing some of David's words. Obviously, you know, in the book, he tells you exactly what, it, what his thoughts were. But that's what you find out. And you can learn a lot about that, right? Any film, you know, lover or editor or aspiring editor, you know, can learn a lot about stuff from that story. And, you know, th those things happened over and over again. So that was one way where, because, you know, yes, there were definitely editors who were very, very, <laughs> they were shy. They didn't really want to talk about the craft. They didn't know how to talk about the craft. And I, and, you know, when I would call them or when I would write to them and start to schedule the things, you know, the time I said, you know, really, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on, you know, picking apart scenes and anything like that. I really just want to talk to you about your career, your experiences. What have you learned? What do you want to pass on to people? And, uh, uh, that's kind of that really broke the ice. I, I like I would say everybody. Uh, everybody was really looking forward to answering those kinds of questions. And then yes, there's a lot of material about the films and some things that had never been you know had never been written before. So that's kind of the, the the fun part of the discovery. But the conversation with David was very very interesting. And again, it's over and over again. There's a there's a really funny story about um, I had tracked down Thomas Stanford. You know, in 1960, Dan Mandel won for the apartment, and in 62 was Ann Coates on. Uh, Lawrence. And in 61, West Side Stories right in there. And Thomas Stanford's British and he had long been retired. You know, I finally tracked him down, got to Santa Fe and met with him. And uh, it was crazy because I said, you know, well, what was it like interviewing, you know, for the director of West Side Story, who was the editor of Citizen Kane? <laughs> He's just like, you know, very, very difficult, right? He goes, but I was so young, I just didn't, you know, it didn't phase me in a way. And he asked for West Side Story and he got turned down. And I said, really? And I, and he said, yeah, you know, you know, Bob, he's Bob, right? Bob Wise. He says, Bob said, I think you're too young. I want to go for somebody who's more experienced. And so a couple of weeks in, so, you know, Thomas is working on a, on a lot of different picture and he goes, you know, he goes by like two weeks into shooting West Side Story and Wise says to him, he goes, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm over here. I'm working on this. And he says, you know, I think I need somebody who's younger, more open to ideas, more flexible. And that's how we get the job. It's crazy, right? And um, but what if he hadn't meandered over? What if he hadn't, you know, but again, it's, you have to ask for the job. It's not just going to come to you. And then he tells me the story, Gordon, you know, and I said, well, I know this film really well, but nobody's ever, I've never heard this story before. He says, well, I've never told it. That's the first time I'm telling the story out of respect to Bob, you know, who had passed away. And, um, you know, there's the big rumble scene and Bernardo kills Riff, Tony kills Bernardo, and Thomas needed to create this dramatic pause, and he had to extend the music two to four bars. So Wise comes in, and uh, Stanford shows him the scene, and Wise loves it, and he got a couple of little corrections, and Thomas says, yeah, we have a problem, because Leonard Bernstein's contract says we can't change the music in any way. We can't we can't repeat it, we can't chop it, we can't, we can't do anything. And Wise like, he says, well, we need to open this up. So they send Saul Chaplin, who's the associate producer in New York, to take Bernstein to dinner. And they're having dinner, fine wine, etc. And then, you know, Chaplin says, we need to, you know, we need four repeat bars in the moment to make it work visually. And uh, sort of, you know, the easiest path is usually the shortest path through a discussion board, right? And so they explain it, right? And they're all worried, like, if Bernstein, we're, you know, we're not going to be able to do anything, we can't. And Bernstein basically agrees, you know, he understands why you need to do it, right? And so it's just, you know, it's very interesting things, but that happened because, you know, Thomas felt this is what they needed to do, despite, you know, the rules and regulations around it. It's, it's fascinating. Was there any sort of piece of knowledge that you received from one of these editors that you sort of stuck with you or surprised you and has sort of been with you since? You know, it's almost like quoting Churchill, right? And, the, and the, you know, never, ever, 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 ever give up, right? 
Um, there's lots of stories like that. You think about Stephen Mirioni, you think about uh, Hughes Winborn, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, respectively for, you know, traffic and crash. They were on their last dollars, you know, and the next phone call, you know, really moved them so far forward. So the thing that I learned is, again, perseverance, patience, be humble, but ask for the job if you think you're ready for it. And let's see, please and thank you get you a long way in life, right? And, and uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, it's funny, I was talking to an editor and I said, you know, so when you, when you interview an assistant, what are you looking for? And, you know, the editor would say, you know, these are Academy Award editors and they would say things like, it's the little things like, I'm going to be in this room for a year, you know, will we have something to talk about other than the work? Do they have a varied background? Do they have you know, different life experiences? Will they be able to help me as opposed to just, you know, arranging my footage? So that was very interesting, right? One of the really interesting things was just getting insight into, you know, how to present yourself. I think those are important things, whether you're going on a job interview, you know, in a different industry or, or whether they're pursuing this type of career. You mentioned earlier, you would ask the, the editors, you know, what do you want to pass on? So I want to ask you from your life experience and everything you've sort of seen, what is it that you would like to pass on to the next generation of whether it's tech builders or editors? On the technology side, I think that there are many, many miles to go uh, in terms of if we're talking just about sort of digital monitor editing systems, there are many miles to go and many uncharted territories, which will open up the content creation process to people who aren't classically trained or classically pursuing an editing career, right? And so if we think that, you know, several million people are, you know, trained in this craft, we could also say that a billion people would love to be able to communicate using video and audio, but maybe the applications and the tools aren't there. So I think that first thing I'd like to say is that there are even more improvements and changes coming to these systems, which will really democratize, to use that sort of overused word, but democratize the ability to interact with video and audio. I think that's really going to be very, very promising how people communicate in new ways. And so that's something that, you know, I want to hopefully, you know, have some ability to help influence. And then the other thing I think, and just in terms of the artistic side is try to find a mentor in whatever you're doing, you know, try to find someone who can um, guide you and show you a little bit of a path and give you some advice and guidance. There are a lot of people who are really willing to help, but you have to ask them and you have to ask them in a polite way and, and be respectful if they're really, really busy. But if you can find someone who can help you along the way or just guide you in terms of where some of the potholes might be, it can be very, very important. Maybe the last thing, Gordon, is, you know, don't be dissuaded by, you know, some failure. One of the questions I asked people, you know, as I said earlier, was what film did you work on really, really hard, you know, and you really thought it was going to do well and it just didn't. And, you know, you'd like audiences to revisit. And uh, for the craziest reasons, it might just be out of your hands. You know, I, I asked this question to Joel Cox, who, had, you know, long, long time, you know, Clint Eastwood editor. And, and so, you know, we both said the same film, you know, um, and he said, you know, they, this is a film about, you know, really like child kidnapping. And in the United States, you know, they, they open it in November. Who wants to see that, you know, in the holiday season? In Europe, they open it in February and it does $100 million. That's completely out of your control, you know, as an editor or as, you know, someone who's working in the creative aspects of these things. You know, bad decision? Yeah, horrible decision, right? But, you know, it's just one of those things. Now, I have one last question that I ask everyone in an interview. And I was wondering if uh, you could tell me what is your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch? 
<laughs> That's funny. Um, favorite guilty pleasure? Oh, it's got to be Roadhouse. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's got to be Roadhouse. It's got everything. It's got the scene-chewing Ben Gazzara. You know, it's got Sam Elliott, you know, the wizened, old, leathered, you know, mentor, right? And it's it's one of these things where it's a bit of a train wreck, but, you know, <laughs> it's so much fun to watch. Yeah, that's probably the one. Well, thanks so much for letting me interview. Thanks so much, Gordon. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. So that was my interview with Tom. I'd like to thank Tom Ohanian for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Naraj Patel for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.